Harmony and Healing Podcast, a podcast about music, health, wellness, and activism that will help you to find balance between life as a musician and self-care through health and wellness. I'm your host, Jazzy Piggott, a tuba player, composer, certified personal trainer, writer, educator, and podcaster based in Baltimore, Maryland. In this week's episode, I will be speaking with Dr. Matthew Claus. To read his bio, Matthew Claus is an assistant professor of instrumental music education at Ithaca College. Prior to his appointment at IC, he served as an instrumental music teacher at the Boston Arts Academy and as a lecturer at SUNY Broome, Morrisville State, and Mansfield University. Most recently, Dr. Claus was the music coordinator for the Johnson City Central School District. His research on instrumental music, technology, race, and popular music education is published in several peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Claus serves on the editorial review boards of Music Educators Journal and Contributions to Music Education. He is the chair of New York State School Music Association Research Committee, and he frequently presents at national and international music conferences, including the National Association for Music Education's National Conference, the Symposium on Music Teacher Education, New Directions in Music Education, and the World Conference for the International Society for Music Education. Dr. Claus served as an instructor and consultant to the Berklee College of Music City Music Network, a national program that provides music education to inner-city students across the United States. The City Music Network, in conjunction with the Mayor's Office of Boston, awarded him the Emerging Leader in Music Education Award in 2010. Dr. Claus has also received grants and honors from Mr. Holland's Opus, the NAM Foundation, Little Kids Rock, Guitar Center, NISMA, the Ithaca College Center for Faculty Excellence, and the Serdna Foundation. Many of these grants and awards help to provide quality music education to students in underserved communities. In this episode, we cover a variety of topics related to music, health, wellness, and even some activism. We talk about culturally responsive pedagogy, the importance of improvisation for some musicians and how to start, balancing educating and performing, maintaining a general work-life balance, different ways to exercise, the importance of quality over quantity in work and practice, appreciating and honoring the strengths and accomplishments of others, the value of mindfulness and meditation, scheduling and keeping your calendar organized, the Pomodoro technique, and why you need to be kind to yourself. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself so they can know who you are? Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, My name is Matthew Claus. I'm a professor of music education at Ithaca College, and I primarily teach uh, instrumental methods courses, some things related to popular music. Um, I'm a woodwind specialist myself, so I teach some classes related to the the flute, clarinet, and saxophone. And that's a little bit about, um, yeah, I guess where I am currently here in Ithaca, New York. So I know you do a lot of research on like particularly improvisation and then culturally responsive pedagogy. So what inspired you to get involved with that? Yeah, um, I think 
I've always been really interested in jazz improvisation and my uh, earliest memories of school music were playing in the jazz band and having the opportunities to take solos. And I just, I loved, I remember my parents asking me if I was practicing my school music um, for band, but I was always way more interested in, in uh, honing my improvisation skills and, and working on improvisation solos, which when you're beginning doesn't often sound very good <laughs> uh, as you're just learning to uh, navigate chord changes and uh, chord scale theory. So yeah, I know I, it, it was, um, it was mostly something that I was interested in myself learning to teach myself just jazz theory and improvisation and school music. But then um once I graduated from my undergraduate degree, I was I was lucky enough to have a position in Boston where I primarily worked with jazz ensembles and taught some improvisation classes. So I was really excited to, to take that to the next level. And I guess where this intersects with culturally responsive pedagogy um, is that the students the students I taught in Boston were primarily interested in um, playing jazz, salsa, hip hop, R&B, popular music, and were really interested in, in improvisation and composition and songwriting. So I, I began to think a bit more about what the musical goals uh, of my individual students were in my class, and they were not all the same. Every student was had their own goals. And then think about how I could help them uh, reach their goals by facilitating learning experiences, learning more myself about the diversity of styles and musical skills that re were, re were required of those traditions um, and working alongside uh, of my students. So um, a lot of the, the styles I was teaching in Boston uh, in incorporated improvisation. So that just uh, seemed to be a, a good fit and, and something that we could all, regardless of what style of music we were interested in exploring in mostly jazz and commercial settings was something that we could benefit from. So I guess that's, that's yeah, really where I started to see the two uh, intersect is learning what the goals of my students were and how I could respond to that. Okay. So why do you think improvisation is important for musicians? Yeah, I think, I think improvisation is important for all musicians. Um, but I do want to be careful to recognize that some, some students may aspire to make music in traditions that don't require improvisation to a really high degree. So I think that, I think that's perfectly okay. Um, in our national core art standards, uh, Many of them are guided by the artistic process of creating music. So just even inherent, inherent in school music education today is the idea that students should be learning how to independently and authentically uh, improvise and create music within a, a, a range of styles and traditions. So I feel like from a public school standpoint, um, it's important for all students to have the opportunity to learn to do that. And if they choose to explore musical traditions that incorporate it, that's great. And I think for music education students with whom I primarily work, they need to be prepared to do that. So they need to, to know how to teach improvisation, um, which could be applied to uh, a diversity of styles and traditions. But I, I don't know, I, I'm fearful of requiring musical skills of all people uh, in recognizing that um, not all musical skills are authentic to a tradition. So just like, I think it's unfair to require um, all uh, students of jazz to be able to um, perform. I don't. I don't know. Like a um, 
a, a fugue on the piano or to sight read something that's particularly, uh, you know, written in the classical tradition at a, at a very complex uh, level, if, if they're interested primarily in musical traditions that focus more on oral transmission and improvisation and different notations, different forms of notation. That's something that's also in our core art standards is uh, standard notation is any system that is in widespread use um, and is uh, appropriate for the musical tradition. So if, uh, if you have a popular musician who wants to improvise and primarily improvises over uh, lead sheets or chord charts, I think that's okay. So once again, uh, yeah, I, I worry about saying this musical skill is required of all students, recognizing that it is a skill that is really important to uh, a lot of styles, but um, maybe it maybe it's not for everyone and that's okay too. You know what might have brought about the change in the curriculum? Like, why did they suddenly start requiring that? Because I know when I was growing up, we were never asked to improvise. And I only started recently doing like a YouTube series of improvisation, but it's been difficult. Right. So the most current set of core standards were created in 2014. Before that, uh, if the, I, the previous national standards for music education, it was either 96 or 94. I can't remember the exact year. So some music education persons could be very mad at me right now. Um, but it was it was in the 90s. So you probably should have had some of experiences that were related to the previous national standards. One was um, uh, improvising and arranging a variety of accompaniments and melodies. Or, it was something along that language. So it was it was generally about creating music. Um, but a lot of surveys of music teachers in the 90s indicated, or at least uh, one or two that I'm familiar with, um, uh, indicated that teachers were generally felt unprepared to teach improvisation in the 90s, school music teachers. So uh, it and, and other studies have shown that improvisation is not really a major part of undergree, uh, undergraduate degree uh, coursework in music education. So those, those two things kind of add up. Um, now I, I feel like with the new core art standards in 2014, there's uh, maybe a refreshed effort to to really uh, ensure that music teachers have some skills to teach improvisation and composition. And there's definitely a shift in music education away from uh, literacy as the ability to read and write on five line staff notation and a new definition of literacy to independently uh, create music, uh, create uh, create perform and respond to music. So I feel like there's definitely a shift away from a, a I don't want to say a one size fits all, but a a model that's primarily driven by um, creating uh, existing ensembles of band orchestras and choirs, and uh, perhaps a new movement in music education to um, to create other kinds of musical experiences and recognize that a large percentage of students beyond elementary school um, may not be participating in those ensembles. So how can we make sure that students have skills like improvisation to engage with music beyond their uh, elementary requirement? At least it's required in New York. I, I think many states require music or arts. Sometimes it's music or art in elementary school, but um, beyond that, there aren't a lot of states I'm aware of that require music um, in the secondary setting. Okay, so for people who are kind of like me and they've never had experience improvising, how do you recommend that they get started with that? Because like you were saying, it's not pretty in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it can be overwhelming. Um, so I think to start very simply, 
um, and not there's a tendency for uh, improvisers, including myself, to just play a lot of notes. And then we think, oh, that sounds really cool if you can play a lot of notes really fast. But uh, I think starting very slow, maybe just creating some parameters like I am going to only use this one note, uh, this one pitch. Or I'm going to use this set of pitches, but I'm only going to use this uh, this bound set of rhythms. So I might only do rhythms that are da, 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 da. And I can change the notes, but I'm never going to change the rhythm. So giving yourself very strict rules and guidelines actually, in a way, allows you to be freer because you're not so overwhelmed and paralyzed by all the potential choices. Because I, I think that's one of the scary things about improvisation is there's just so many directions you could go. Someone could just kind of um, freeze up and not really know where to start. So when uh, I approach improvisation with students here at IC, we, we might begin, I often do it in secondary instrument classes. So they're learning an instrument for the first time. So, hey, we've only learned two notes on this instrument. Let's take these two notes and explore. I'm going to play some patterns. You echo the back. Now that you're familiar with the language, when I play a pattern, I want you to make up your own pattern back. And then they're doing that all together. So it sounds there's that uh, anonymous nature of, you know, if, if everyone's improvising together, you, you don't really stand out. Uh, and then gradually increasing the complexity, adding more notes, adding more rhythms slowly as students become comfortable. Um, and recently, I've, I've been really interested in thinking about how we teach the construction of improvised melodies across chord changes. So it's one thing to be like, okay, we're just going to hang out in E flat major for a while, just explore it, see what, see what you find. And another thing to say, okay, we're going to go from, you know, a one chord to a five chord and then back to a one chord. Um, so many times when I would hear young uh, jazz ensembles, or even honestly, you know, a high school or some college jazz ensembles, students would take one scale and just use that to improvise over an entire chord progression. And um, they didn't really, uh, it, it wasn't really evident that they understood the harmonies. And, and, I don't, and I don't mean understand from a theoretical perspective, but that they're just not observing them. So as a listener, it sounds okay, but to really understand how you can how one note, how a C functions differently in a C major chord than a, a flat major chord, for example. So to really um, think about navigating those chord changes and creating melodies that are melodic, uh, melodies that are melodic, that sounds redundant, but that aren't like really flashy and notey, but something that you would sing. So something lyrical uh, is probably a better word. So that's, that's what my current interest in teaching improvisation is right now developing very lyrical melodies over increasingly complex chord changes. Okay. Yeah, that's a good advice, I would say. So musicians listen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so how much do you perform? Because I know you're primarily researching and teaching. So do you still perform much? How does, yeah, yeah. place in your life? So being a performer is definitely a big part of my identity. And uh, I guess in the before times, uh, I, I played in a number of local bands. I played in some, some uh, dance bands, some, uh, some salsa bands and Latin jazz bands, some just uh, straight ahead jazz groups. Um, and I would try to play, you know, out in the community a few times a month. And that, that was really um, 
I guess would give me the energy um, to, to think about uh, my teaching practice and just kind of like remind me, you know, why I'm in this, in this field is because I love, I love this music so much. So um, that definitely uh, COVID threw a wrench in that because we, to a large degree, we, we found fewer opportunities to perform in live spaces. So um, as we're coming, uh, hopefully out on the other side of this, I, I do hope to, to get more involved with playing out in the community, uh, learning from other amazing musicians here in Ithaca. But uh, yeah, it definitely has been of a, a performing hiatus. So I've, I've concentrated on writing more and researching more, but it's something that I have my saxophone right next to me. It's never very far away. And I love to teach with it too. I think that's something we forget is as music teachers, we're performing all the time in our, in our classes and we should constantly be modeling for our students and demonstrating, you know, a characteristic sound and, you know, whatever's appropriate for that tradition and for our instrument. So uh, I, I do believe, and we have this conversation at the college all the time, that to be a great teacher, you really need to perform at a high level. Yeah. So how do you maintain a general work-life balance? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think musicians by our nature are just, we're kind of obsessive. We're, we're so driven. Um, that we can spend just an unbelievable amount of time just practicing, refining something that I don't know. I'm sure there are other examples. Of course, I'm biased to musicians. I think we we have some you know unique uh, characteristics that allow us to just dig in so deep here. But yeah, I mean, there's all the the research on the 10,000 hours and and what musicians do and um, to to become great at their craft. So uh, all that being said. It's difficult to find work-life balance because whenever you are doing the life part, you feel guilty about not doing the work part. <laughs> so it's hard to really enjoy work-life balance if you just always feel guilty about not practicing um, when you know you you have a moment to practice or not reading or writing, depending on if you're in uh, uh, if you have um, scholarship that is in more of a journal publication kind of path. Um, I feel like. Yeah, in the past few years, I've really uh, tried to be more intentional about the projects that I do and to not just play a gig because I had the opportunity to play a gig or not just write a paper because I had the opportunity, but really be more selective and do fewer projects, both playing and research, but that brought me greater joy. Um, and then that also allowed me the time to do th other things um, that that bring me joy that that believe it or not, are not related to music or writing, um, but just just enjoying life, enjoying the beautiful outdoors in uh, Ithaca, New York, and getting out on the lake and that kind of thing. That that honestly, um, so I think I'm thirty. Yeah, I'm thirty nine right now. I didn't start doing I think till I was thirty six. So sure, I wish I had realized some of those things earlier. But um, I'm really appreciative that. Um, that I figured it out to some degree to, to concentrate on the things that professionally bring you the greatest joy and then also make time for um, just hobbies and things that um, are important for all of us humans to be doing too. Okay, so you mentioned uh, how you have to be selective about things you, you take, but then we're constantly told, I feel that if you get an opportunity, you take the opportunity because you're young and you're not getting anything right now. Yeah. So, how do you feel about that? 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I did just say, I wish I had figured this out sooner, but I also don't know how my life would have gone differently if I, if I had um, not been so passionate about working long hours when I, um, when I was younger. So uh, it, that's a good question. I, I was definitely of the mindset of say yes to everything. Um, again, until, until even just recently, I, I really tried to take advantage of every opportunity I could and learn everything I could from every experience. But at some point, I think it's okay to, to, to identify, okay, what are my, what are my goals? Um, and once you have reached your short or long-term goal to, to reevaluate them and to decide um, if you are able to reallocate and prioritize your time differently. So, I mean, I just hit a major landmark goal in, in academia, in, in um, getting tenure at this institution. And that certainly um, doesn't mean you, uh, you, you continue to work in many different ways. Um, we were joking before the interview means a lot more committee work, but there is a, a bit of a relief of the pressure of not feeling like I need to spend every minute of my life publishing papers because um, my peers in the field have, are, have evaluated my work and have determined um, that I am producing scholarship um, that has contributed to the field. So there's a little bit of that um, pressure has been released. So I suppose I've met a, a, a career goal in one way, and that's allowed me to take a breath and to re-examine um, how I'm spending my time. There's some book I read, I can't remember what it was, but it basically just you know encouraging you to write down how many minutes a day you're spending doing each of the things that are important to you. So, and I even do that to this day, every Sunday I'll sit down with my calendar and I will block out time um, for when I'm going to work on special projects. Or if I want to have leisure time, I will, I will schedule in leisure time on Thursday night. You know, I'm going to take a break and, you know, go for a walk or something. Um, so I, I think managing your time well is really important. Um, but yeah, I'd say once you've met some goals uh, to, to reevaluate how you're spending the minutes in your day and plot them out onto your calendar, schedule time for the things that you love to do, um, even if those are not professional. Yeah. Okay, so do you tend to stay active? A big topic on this podcast is the, the health part of the health and wellness. So do you stay active? And if so, like, what do you do and how do you find time for that? I love that. Uh, yeah, I think I stay uh, at least moderately active. Uh, I do try to schedule maybe when it's nice outside right now, you, you can't see on the podcast, but there's there's snow on the ground here in Ithaca. But when there is not snow, I try to get out for a half hour every day and just take a walk, um, just take a walk. And it's amazing how productive taking a walk can be for your work performance. It's just unbelievable. I feel like I have some of my best ideas when I'm just go for a walk and, you know, you clear your head. Um, sometimes the goal of my walk is to not think about anything other than just walking. But sometimes the goal of my walk is to uh, analyze a problem and to think about it when I don't have a screen in front of my face and distractions. So yeah, 30 minutes of walking every day is really important to me. Um, and Jesse, I know you like to, to lift weights a little bit. That's that's another one of my one of my passions is lifting weights twice a week just to um, do some resistance training. And um, part of that for me is, is just 
also about goal setting and learning more about how I can change certain variables in, you know, either nutrition or workout routine to, um, to see if I can do something that I haven't done before, whether that's, you know, lift five more pounds of weight or um, lift five more reps of something. But again, just really, really interested in, in um, how I can make changes to, uh, to yeah, my lifestyle, uh, my workout routine, whatever to, to, to achieve those goals. Oh, I didn't know you were a weightlifter too. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to lift sometime yeah. <laughs> together. We could do a zoom, zoom training session. <laughs> so I guess going back to like the health and wellness side of things, what do you think are common stumbling blocks for mental health and wellness with musicians? Cause I feel like we have, I don't know if it's more depression or anxiety than the rest of the population, but it's significant within the music field. And yeah. So- like music students okay yeah yeah that's something we talk a lot about here you know at the college um i think that we put so much pressure on ourselves and we're our work is vulnerable because we often we used if we're singing we're using our bodies as an instrument or our instrument like feels like an extension of ourselves um and it's so public like we often go on stage to just put ourselves out there. So the pressure to perform at a high level and to practice when we're not performing and um, just the, I think because our, uh, the nature of our work is so public and per performance based, there's just, it's hard not to compare yourselves to others. And um, the, so the anxiety that comes from like having to perform at a high level and comparing yourselves with like all of those things are probably um, a perfect storm of, of contributing factors for, you know, s- struggling with some, some mental health. And I, I think, um, yeah, I just, there's a bit of a culture that I suppose musicians have created for ourselves where we romanticize the idea of the, um, you know, just the person who locks themselves in a practice room for four hours a day. And, and it, I feel like maybe that's getting better, but um, I don't know. I, I remember reading about um, Charlie P- Parker practicing 12, 13 hours a day for years of his life and being so inspired <laughs> and being like, Oh, I want to do that. Like, you know, and it, in order to practice 12 to 13 hours a day, you have to make a lot of sacrifices that could catch up with you. Um, they certainly um, did with, with him. So, yeah, I feel like some of the, um, some of the way we celebrate um, just extreme and obsessive work habits is, is probably um something we we can re-examine. I think there are great examples of people who maintain a, a healthier practice routine. Um, I feel like I saw, and I, again, I, forgive me if I'm misrepresenting anyone or misquoting uh, anyone here, but I feel like Aaron Tyndall once uh, posted somewhere on social media years ago about, you know, if, if you're practicing beyond two hours in a session, you know, um, he didn't say like, you're not doing it right, but it's like something at some point it becomes less effective. Um, you have, you reach a point of, um, diminishing returns where, um, really, you know, you should be able to get everything you need to do for your daily practice in, in two hours, or at least a two hour chunk. And that, you know, I reflected on that and thought, yeah, I definitely had four or five hour practice sessions where I was more concerned with just logging the hours 
than the quality of, of the work. So I feel like people who are really good at focusing and saying, okay, I'm going to live my, because I've put it in my planner, I'm going to limit myself to two hours of practice this evening. These are the things I need to accomplish. If you're focused and you're not distracted, you're not checking your phone or on a computer. Like, yeah. You could, you could really get a lot of work done in those two hours. So yeah, I think, um, I think we need to move away from a culture of just un- unbelievable and unsustainable practice hours expectations to uh, a healthier one that's more about quality of practice and quality of that could be anything to quality of how we spend our time. Um, and hopefully that might contribute to uh, being able to breathe more and taking a little bit less pressure off ourselves. I don't know about the performance part though. Uh, I'll have to think more about that. Like the comparing one oneself to others. And, and I know that can be really, uh, that can be a struggle, but yeah, if we can, if we can uh, work towards better practice habits, I feel like that would go a long way. Yeah. Like to piggyback off of that, I think um, what you're saying about the performance aspect, I think it's realizing that other people are going to be better than you and just being comfortable with that for a while. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The, um, this is just going to be a podcast full of butchering quotations and <laughs> references, but there's, there's some Buddhist philosophy, right. About the, the root of all human suffering is the belief that we are different from one another. Like, I think there's some, um, if, if you can feel like you're more of a part of a community and uh, celebrate the achievements of the people in your community, even if they feel like, you know, they're competing with you, um, that is that could contribute to a much healthier mindset, too, in, in terms of the, like you said, realizing, hey, like, we're all just trying to get better. There's going to be people who are better than us. Like, that's OK. Um, I, I'm sure we've all had these moments. I distinctly remember hearing you know, as, as a, maybe a 20 year old saxophonist going to a club and hearing some 13 year old just like play circles around me and like, why, why am I even doing this? Uh, um, so yeah, there is, there is that element to it, but I think, yeah, learning how to appreciate, um, the accomplishments of others and to celebrate them and recognize, yeah, Hey, you know, we all have different strengths and, um, we're all, we're all part of this community together could be helpful. Yeah. What other strategies and tips do you have for musicians to maintain their mental health and well-being? Yeah, I think when when I was at my most um, obsessive uh, with with practicing and trying to to play at the highest level, I found meditation to be a really great way. I think it's always important, but that was particularly helpful at just uh, centering myself and um, letting go of some of the the fears um, and the anxieties related to um, being, you know, putting yourself on stage uh, often. I really liked um, this book by Kenny Werner, who is a jazz pianist uh, called Effortless Mastery. And I remember going to a summer program when I was in high school and, and the, the teacher there um, had us read some passages and check out some recordings. The, the book is really great at learning um, how to become the best possible musician through letting go of some of your fears and anxieties about performing music. And it comes it used to come with a, a CD, a compact disc. I don't know what it, it probably comes with a streaming code now, but uh, it has a series of meditations, guided meditations and visualizations for musicians. So it's really great because it starts out with you just meditating and reflecting without an instrument but then you eventually move towards guided uh, meditations on the instrument itself and learning how to 
uh, play from this space that really unlocks your potential while simultaneously um, doing great things for your mental health. So yeah, there's, I think it's no secret that exercise and meditation are um, really uh, helpful for, for um, having healthy uh, mindsets and attitudes and just well-being. So um, definitely, I, I encourage people to check out Effortless Mastery by Kenny Werner. And um, there's great apps too. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Headspace. And um, so that's that's another guided meditation app. You can set how long you want to meditate for each day and it takes you in what your goals are in meditation. And that could be to reduce anxieties or there's performance-based things that you can um, concentrate on while you're doing your meditations. And those, those I found to be really, really helpful uh, for myself personally. Did you, did you find meditation difficult in the beginning? Like what do you do when your mind starts racing? Right. Yeah. So and, and that's why maybe guided meditations are helpful because um, they, they give you strategies for just noting thoughts that enter your mind. So uh, yeah, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and I'm sure I've experienced myself too. You're meditating and then you start to think about something and then you get mad at yourself because you're bad at meditating and then you're thinking about that and then it just doesn't work. It's, it doesn't have the desired effect, but um, that's totally a normal part of the process. And there are some techniques noting is something that, that I've, I've learned in the headspace app about just, Oh, when something comes into your mind, let it just know that it's there and just, you know, let, you know, it's okay. And you're just noting it and not to become obsessed with thinking about your thoughts. And eventually, um, those, those start to go away. The other, I, I guess, a strategy is to focus on something intentional. So whether, um, you're listening to something, whether there's a pitch, whether there's a candle that you're just focusing on, or probably, uh, you know, the most common one is just your breathing. So to have a strategy where you're, you're counting your breathing, you're just focusing on your breath, giving yourself something singular to focus on can really center yourself. And then if things pop in, just know that's okay. Let them pop in, let them pop out and then return to your breath. Um, and maybe doing it for short saying, you know, I'm just going to meditate for five to 10 minutes. You know, you don't have to think about, well, I've got to meditate an hour every day. No, just give yourself short, short uh, meditation um, practices. And then like any practice, you know, you might find more benefits from, from doing it even longer. Okay. So you mentioned earlier some time management stuff. So I wanted to get back into that and just like have yeah. a focused discussion about what you think or how you think people should plan out their schedules if they're struggling with that and like trying to fit in things like meditation and exercise along with practicing and classwork and everything that they have to do. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I live by my Microsoft outlook calendar um, because outlook is our uh, platform of choice here at the college. But of course, you know, Google makes a great calendar. iCal, all of those things to really, just schedule everything so that you don't have to hold on to them in your mind. I think a lot of fear and anxiety I had in college was related to me worrying I was going to miss something or I would forget about a gig or I'd forget about an assignment. But if you take, if you have a really well-organized digital calendar that can send you reminders or it can help you um, categorize and sort, I feel like that allows your mind to let go of those things. Um, and it also gives you a very clear a picture of how you're spending your day and, and your week. So you can really, like I said, it, it, kind of my Sunday practices to, to assess, okay, those were my goals for the previous week. This is how I 
blocked out my time? Did I meet my goals? Do I need to adjust in the coming week to spend more time? Maybe I, maybe I missed, you know, an exercise session that I want to make up next week, or maybe, you know, this wasn't enough time to really dig into this project. I need to give it more time. So um, yeah, I really feel like having an organized digital calendar, at least for, and some people uh, do the same thing with a paper calendar, which I think is awesome too. So if you have a paper calendar and a paper organizer, that's great. But just having some way to be really organized um, with your scheduling. Um, I also use something called uh, a Pomodoro timer. And this is more, this might be an effective tool for practicing, but um, I use it for writing. And the idea of the Pomodoro timer is that you do a very concentrated, but short amount of work in typically it's 20, 25 minutes. I think Pomodoro is Italian for tomato. So people would use like a I don't know what a tomato timer is. It has something to do with cooking. I don't know. I think you cook a little bit, right, Jazzy? I don't, is, yeah. is there a, a, a timer that you, I don't know? I don't know. <laughs> At any rate, I use just a, like a stopwatch and, and work very concentrated, undistracted, no phones, no social media for 25 minutes. And then you take a five minute break, allow your brain to um, just do whatever it wants to do, whether it wants to think about something or be distracted, that's fine. You get a five minutes of distraction and then you do another 25 minutes, take five minutes off, 25 minutes on five minutes off. Um, it's like interval training for, for work productivity. So I find that to be really helpful. Um, for, for me, sometimes it's overwhelming to be like, Oh, I have to practice for two hours or I have to, I have to write for two hours. That's a really long time. I don't know how I'm going to maintain focus for that, but 25 minutes is easy. And once you have 25 minutes of focused work, I find that I actually crave like the next time I get to do that. And sometimes it's hard to take the five minute break because I'm like, oh, I really want to get back. But you have to pace yourself and give yourself that separation and then come back in for another 25 minutes of just completely um, undistracted work. So, yeah, the Pomodoro timer um, and there's apps that you can use, too. I've got I actually have a weird system where I have uh a Trello board. A Trello board is kind of like a vision board of all your projects and your goals. So I have a Trello board that has everything I'm working on. And that's synchronized to a Pomodoro timer that I can say, oh, I'm working on this connect the dots improvisation project for 25 minutes right now that connects to my project board, logs the 25 minutes. And then all of these things are, of course, dictated by what pops up on my Outlook calendar. So I'm a very technology uh, oriented person. I use all of these tools to help me organize my time, make sure I'm being productive. Um, and then if I'm really, really productive, then I feel like it's okay to, um, you know, exercise in the evening or go out, um, you know, for a walk or go out to the lake or, or, or just enjoy life, get that energy, that renewal. There's um, Angela Duckworth is the author of Grit. And she talks about how she'd rather have um, one day vacations throughout seven weeks than have like a seven day vacation, because just to have that short break away from the work just makes you so much more productive. So I, I guess I feel that way about my work day, really. If I'm working every day from 8 a.m. till 8 p.m., I'm going to be exhausted. And then the next day of work isn't going to be high quality. But if I can work from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. really intensely, then I can take a break from work. And then when I come back the next day, my work is of really high quality. So, yeah, I guess we're getting back to this whole idea of, of the really focusing on the quality um, and not just 
like insane amounts of hours that at some point start to diminish um, the, the quality of your work. Yeah, I've never heard of the Pomodoro technique before. So like that sounds like something that's probably going to be useful. So I might. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it for practicing too. Just like, okay, I got 25 minutes to work on this one challenge and I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to do it for 25 minutes and then give yourself a break. And then you come back and you have another hyper-focused 25 minutes. So um, yeah, let me know what you think. Yeah. Okay, so do you have any general advice you want to give the listeners? Hmm. Be kind to yourself. Uh, Just so many people I care about so deeply um, are so good at what they do and are so highly critical of what they do at the same time. And, and um, we don't want to get into a space where we're, we're just so um, we're so hypercritical and unkind to ourselves that it paralyzes us from doing the good work that we're capable of doing. So um, yeah, I don't know. Like you said, this is something I think musicians tend to struggle with the, the mental health aspect. So I, I think giving ourselves the permission to to fail and to make mistakes and to realize that we're human, we're imperfect. There's people who are going to perform a piece better than we are and to be okay with that, just to be kind. Um, Musicians tend to be their own worst critics. And uh, I feel like um, over time that can be really damaging um, because we get to, we get in our own head and we have, we begin to have this inner dialogue, even while we're playing that, uh, inhibits us from from reaching our our true potential yeah yeah it's very important um i think i mentioned in a previous episode i had a friend who recommended like putting a picture of your your baby self like on the stand and like every time you're like saying bad things just like look at baby you (laughs) (laughs) i love it i love it yeah if you have a picture of when you first started playing your instrument too and just think of the magic of opening your case and pulling out your, your instrument and playing it for the, it just, everything was so exciting. You, you are proud of everything you played. You weren't, you know, frustrated with yourself for not getting a, a, a challenging passage. So yeah, I love that idea of re- remind yourself of the baby version of yourself or a younger version of yourself when you were um, perhaps not so uh, critical of, of your, of your performance. Yeah. I love it. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take that tip. I'm going to find a baby picture of myself and put it here on the wall. I'd be like, be kind to baby Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else you want to say or? No, just only that we, you know, myself and speaking behalf of Ithaca College are just so proud of you, Jazzy, and all that you've accomplished and the amazing projects that you're working with to, to, um, uh, related to mental health and uh, anti-racism and BIPOC composers and just being an awesome person, tuba player, uh, fitness expert, uh, extraordinaire. So uh, kudos to you. And we're, you know, we're so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And thank you for the invitation to, to chat today. No, thank you for coming on. Um, how can people contact you if they have any questions? Sure. So uh, my email address is mclaws uh, at ithaca.edu. That's M-C-L-A-U-H as in hockey, S as in soccer at ithaca.edu. Uh, and yeah, if, if you Google my name, and the, the 
I think a college faculty website will come up with more contact information and, and things about me. Um, I think my Facebook is slash Matt Claus, I think. Um, and I'm, there's only one, it's a highly unusual last name. Um, so it, it shouldn't be too hard to find me on the, uh, on the interwebs. All right. Well, thank you again. Thanks, Jesse. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and took away as much from it as I did. Please be sure to tell one friend or family member about this episode and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Next week, I will be discussing sleep. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Harmony and Healing. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Harmony and Healing Podcast. And you can find me personally at the Jazzy Tubist on both Facebook and Instagram. And at my website, jasminepiggett.com. I'll see you next Thursday. Thank <laughs> you.